0: Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week we hear from the author of Train Spotting, Irvin Welsh, speak to a member of the Healing Council from the Sacred Stones Camp at Standing Rock, and get an update from Chicago Teachers Union President, Karen Lewis. We're
1: we're here talking with Karen Lewis, president of the CTU, uh, on. uh,
2: Lumpin' Radio uh hitting left I don't mean to digress I want to get back to this the to teaching piece the, teach, the teaching yeah. piece but uh if not for your health issues
3: mm-hmm.
2: you probably would be the mayor of Chicago today is that a is that a curse or a blessing
3: well, <sighs> you know I'm not sure uh I was really working hard towards it uh I had so many people supporting me and it still comes up every single day somebody will catch me on the street and they'll say that you know you would have been mayor you would have been mayor um this would have been a nightmare I think you know trying to you know organize all of the crazy stuff that's already wrong with Chicago in addition to our national and uh State issues. I've heard. I've hard. heard you
2: say that uh, that uh, maybe this uh, city is just not manageable. Is, do you still think that? I
3: don't. I don't know. I mean, it's certainly not manageable the way it's been done. You know, I think there are better ways to do it. I think the key is you have to have. Your ears to the ground in all of these 77 neighborhoods. You cannot exclude any of them from the decision-making process. They have to have an opportunity to let you know what the needs are. And I think it's pretty clear that a lot of neighborhoods have just been ignored and, you know, for years and years and years, for decades. So it's going to take a time. It's going to take some real time to rebuild that.
2: Yeah. So, so you, you, you've you been <laughs> so you've been uh, fighting with Rom again. No, uh, I
3: haven't been fighting with him. I'm just you know. You said that he there. wants to he wants <laughs> he wants to do things together and blah blah blah. And I'm like, no, I, I'm not feeling you like that, bro. You know, it's like <laughs> no, you know, please leave me alone. <laughs> you know.
1: Well, he's pointing the finger at the at the governor, right? And the governor is pointing the finger right at him although the republicans seem to be having a hard time getting together on this what i call the it's like starbucks the the bargain
2: grande of uh, <laughs> 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 yes yeah, so the grand bargain just fell apart what do you, what do you think what do you what do you think about the grand bargain and why is the ctu uh, so adamant uh, about it against it
3: because it's not good for anybody let alone it's not good for us you know i mean it's like there's a whole thing with our pension they want to play with I mean, it's like, how many times do we have to go to the Supreme Court? Why are we wasting this kind of energy, time, and legal fees? Because that's who wins, you know. Let's face it. That's the lawyers who wins. are making
1: big money. Off they
3: are. This. I mean, and so didn't we have Canerva? Didn't we have what was the other one? The
1: Senate Bill one? one. Yes, Senate yeah, Bill
3: One. All that went down in flames.
1: Yes, and the court couldn't have been clearer. No, our, I thought
3: they were clear too. But you know, what do I know? I didn't. I didn't go to law school. But
1: no. Well, this was so clear. You don't need to go <laughs> to law know, school. That's what I By the thought. way, Iris Martinez uh, has never seen a pension cutting bill. She hasn't voted for, it, but uh, that's another problem for another day. She's my uh, she's my state senator too. <laughs> well, anyway, so uh, on to the grand, onto this. Uh, on Wait, this. one more
2: thing about the grand bargain. Uh, uh, the grand bargain, uh, which sounds it sounds good. I mean, we've been out we've we've been without a state budget for over two years now, uh, going on three. Uh, uh, Ronner. Governor Ronner says that uh, uh, as preconditions for a grand bargain, aside from the more pension theft, uh, he wants uh, he wants the Democrats to take a hard line on collective bargaining, it acts basically to do, I guess, to do away with collective bargaining rights like they've done in Wisconsin and uh, Ohio and, and other states, Indiana. Uh, Michigan. Michigan. We're uh, surrounded. Yeah. Is that... Uh, well, are, are, are you optimistic th- about that being beaten down and I mean this is a union town after all?
3: I, I don't see how that passes. you know, I, I don't, but I mean there are Republicans that don't want to get on that one. Uh-huh. You know I mean, so there's some really interesting flavors, let's put it that way, of, <laughs> of, of unionism floating around here, but all of them agree on one thing that collective bargaining, actually works. I mean, that's what, I mean, you could even ask, uh, ask uh, Rahm's lawyer, uh, you know, Jim Franzig even believes in the process of collective bargaining, even though he hates it and says we hijacked it by bringing all these people to the table. But, you know, I think we should have collective bargaining that is like on can TV or something. I think it should be public. I think people should be able to see it. And then there wouldn't be all these speculations about what actually goes on. So all the people that want to sing, I want to be in the room when it happens, the room. You know, so, so instead of having that song in the back of your head thinking I'm left out, open it up to the public. You know, let people see how... How, how how shameful some folks are, you know, and and and, and what they will try to do.
1: Well, can, can I turn from the lesson plan for a minute, because I, <laughs> I, I'm interested. You you kind of touched on this issue of the different brands of uh, unionism, mm-hmm. and um, and I know that the uh, CTU and the core caucus that you were part of that that got elected uh, describes the CTU as a social justice. Uh, union, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and how that separate, how you think that might distinguish the CTU from from what we see more generally, especially among uh, uh, in teacher unions and very, in public employee unions. And.
3: Well, we were very clear that things were not going to change unless we involve parents and communities in our asks. Period. I mean, you know, it's like it's one thing for the administration to sit across the table from a bunch of teachers and whatnot and say, no, 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 when what we're asking for is what would be best for kids. You know, so we sat down, we figured out how do we do this? You know, and the first thing we did when we came into office in 2010 is we created an organizing department, which we never had. And we created a research department, which we'd never had. You know, I, I remember going to the woman that was head of research uh, when we first went into office, and I said, "Well, where's our where's our research? Where's our work? Because I'd never seen anything." And so she kind of pointed to a like a like a, a shelf with some journals on it, and I said, "But." Where's the stuff that we're doing, that we're putting out, that, that we're, you know, providing our members? And they'd never done that. And I knew that without that, we would have no standing, no credibility. And the purpose of us doing this was to, one, develop relationships with the parents and with the communities we serve. So that when we asked them to go on strike, because no teacher strike are popular ever, you know, that's just not going to happen because it inconveniences parents. Heck, school inconveniences parents, <laughs> which is why Rom was so able to run on that longer school day, longer school year. Because, you know, schools from 9 to 3 and or 245 and parents working 9 to 5, you that's know. Right. And at-
2: now he's talking about—at he, he, least he was up until this week—talking about ending school three weeks earlier.
3: Well, I don't think he said that. I think Forrest Claypool yeah. said it because right. Forrest Claypool is trying to trying to figure out how to. Forrest move Claypool, the buses. our school
2: CEO. Uh, for those outside of Chicago, we don't have school superintendents no, here anymore. We have—we we have—they're called CEOs, and we run on the business model.
1: <laughs> but Bez just they had a story yesterday. I think that the closing the schools early would cost would cost the school district 30 million dollars in <laughs> there, fines yeah, yeah and fines yeah. you
3: know so I mean I, I think they're gonna I think they're gonna figure it out I, I'm hoping they'll figure it out I mean and especially how do you run on that on that <laughs> platform and then you turn around and say well we tried to explain to you you can't afford to do this you can't afford to pay us which he didn't you know but I don't know. I think the problem is we are in love with business. We are in love when people don't understand new businesses. The overwhelming majority of them fail within five years. You know, so why are we so enamored of the business model?
2: We were just talking about that before you got here, Karen. My brother and I were talking about Caterpillar, oh, and uh, yeah. how the uh, Caterpillar had uh, the, the CEO of Caterpillar had just given a speech. Uh, attacking the, the way uh, government runs and how... Uh, corrupt- and the greedy pensioners. And the greedy pensioners, <laughs> yes. And, uh, and then a day later, the FBI is raiding their offices. Uh, yeah, so yeah. that's the business model. Uh,
3: well, the business model is so ironic because, you know, I, I don't see anything wrong with markets that are fair. I mean, that are reasonable, and that we have some kind of fair trade. I mean, I'm going to do something for you. You're going to remunerate me some kind of way. I get that, but what I don't understand is why government can't be responsible for the things that help the entire commonwealth.
1: But go can we go back again? Sure. I'm, I'm really like pushing on, I guess, on this issue of the of the conception of a social justice union and how that. Yep how that distinguishes uh, you guys from, and does it, put, does it create a tension between you, uh, you and yours and the state union and the national union? Uh, uh, I mean, obviously there's common ground, but does this, this conception of a social justice union create, because I don't think, uh, I don't think the leadership of the NEA and the AFT uh, necessarily conceive themselves in the same way as the CTU does.
3: I think you'd be surprised. I think there's... I I think that it's very difficult to turn hard one way or the other when you're running a big, giant apparatus, okay? And, I mean... uh, and I mean, even within our own membership, we have people that have actually come to the mic and said, "My people have told me that they don't care about this social justice stuff. Uh, we just want you to, you know, get us a good contract. We we want a good raise. We want he- we want our health care. I mean, there are people that are always going to be about the bread and butter. There's and that, nothing wrong with that. No, there isn't. There's you know nothing what? Uh, wrong with that.
2: That's why I don't even like this term, social justice right. union. But I I like the term a fighting union. Yeah. And uh, the question, I, you know, the question to me is uh, whether you're whether it's about bread and butter, so-called bread and butter issues, or the the uh, resisting the the attacks on unions today, whether you're a fighting union or just trying to get some uh, uh, credibility with the you know with the uh, Trump administration or with Rahm Emanuel or what what have you. Well, it's
1: a good it's a good point because my my fear, and, I, and I'm interested whether you share it, is that that if Trump's uh, Supreme Court rules on Friedrichs again, uh, or if the, the Republican Congress passes legislation outlawing agency fees and a fair share, uh, without, uh, without an organizing fighting union, uh, we're going to be without you. It, that'll be a, a death blow to the ability of particularly public employee unions— which are kind of the last folks standing uh, uh, what I think the private sector what about seven percent of the workforce is organized. that's uh, it. Uh, and so we're we're sort of the last folks standing and if they can take away the right of agency fees and uh, fair representation without a organiz- without an organization that's an organizing union, uh, what's gonna happen to us?
3: Well, I think, it's going to be a bigger challenge and and that i think that's okay and i think that i think we will work harder i mean it's just like life changes you know are are you expecting things to be the same all the time no we're expecting challenges but just as if the people that worked really hard in the 60s to get collective bargaining you know it's just going to be us working hard again to to bring it back the way it needs to be back so you know, so the question
1: is, do we have the leadership to do that? We I, had, think, I mean, here we do. I think that's clear. But, I, we're, but we're not, we can't do this alone.
3: No, we can't, which is why the communities and parents and other people are so important. Because what we should be fighting is for unions for everybody, you know. And when people say to me, I don't have a pension, so why should I care there about you yours, that's you know. Exactly and it. I mean, that's. That's a perfectly normal response, and I understand that. And I said, "But okay, I don't get Social Security, so why should I worry about yours?" I said, "We have we're in this together. That's so right. that, you know what you should be having a pension. That's right. You should not be fired. It's a, it's a
1: crime in because this country somebody, that old people get old and right, they don't have a, they don't they have, don't have a money pension. to live. Right? That's I right. mean,
3: it's like it's like we have to change the whole mentality of it's okay." To not have a job with good benefits and good working conditions.
4: Hating Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m.
5: The Trump Diaries, Day 35, February 24th. White House advisor Steve Bannon appeared in public for the first time since the president was sworn in to claim that Trump would, quote, deconstruct the administrative state. Speaking to the conservative political action conference, Bannon told convention goers not to believe the so-called corporatist globalist media that was crying and weeping on election night and is still dead wrong about what the Trump administration is doing. Mr. Bannon claimed everything is going according to plan. And Trump again attacked the news media during his appearance before CPAC, saying that fake news outlets are, quote, the enemy of the people. Trump's speech amounted to a declaration of war against the news media. Trump said, quote, they are very smart, They are very cunning and they are very dishonest. It doesn't represent the people, it will never represent the people. Trump also railed against the use of anonymous sources claiming they were all made up. This was rich as Trump, of course, once posed as his own public relations man to plant stories in the New York tabloids. After spending 10 minutes listening to shortcomings in the news media, Trump said criticism doesn't bother me. Journalists from several organizations were barred from the White House. Reporters from the New York Times, CNN, BuzzFeed, the LA Times, and Politico were blocked from the West Wing office of the press secretary Sean Spicer. Outlets with conservative leanings were allowed into the briefing. ABC, CBS, and Bloomberg were also allowed entrance. Reporters from Time and AP did not attend in protest. And Caitlyn Jenner, perhaps the most influential transgender activist in the country, delivered a blunt warning to Trump in a video posted on Twitter. Speaking of Trump's removal of protections for transgender students, Jenner said, "'This is a disaster,' seemed in court. Jenner's rebuke raises the level of opposition to new heights. She is a high-profile, lifelong Republican and an early supporter of Trump's, she also attended some of the festivities surrounding his inauguration. Day 36, February 25th. legal cannabis activists were alarmed yesterday when Sean Spicer said he expected states to be subject to greater enforcement of federal laws against marijuana use. That is a move that could undercut the growing number of jurisdictions moving to legalize the drug for recreational purposes. Spicer, speaking at a briefing, said that Trump, quote, sees a big difference between the use of marijuana for medical purposes and for recreational purposes. However, Spicer later clarified this matter was one for the Justice Department, who did not comment. And Trump's latest swipe in the media came with him pulling out of the so-called Called Nerd Prom. I will not be attending the White House Correspondents Association dinner this year, Mr. Trump. Please wish everyone well and have a great evening. The last president to miss the dinner was Ronald Reagan, when he was recovering from an assassination attempt. And an internal report handed to the Trump administration undercuts the assessment that people from seven countries, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, highlighted in Trump's Muslim ban, pose a heightened threat of terrorism. The report found that the country of citizenship is unlikely to be a reliable indicator of potential terrorist activity. In fact, the report found that in the past six years, the terrorism threat reached much more widely than the seven countries listed. Individuals from 26 countries had been, quote, inspired carry out attacks in the United States. And a wave of new research suggests that private school vouchers may harm students who receive them. These results are startling and, in fact, the worst in the history of the field. Researchers examined an Indiana voucher program under Mike Pence. In mathematics, they found voucher students who transferred to private schools experienced significant losses in achievement. They also saw no improvement in reading. They also published a major study of Louisiana's voucher program. They found large negative results in both reading and math. And these studies are important because the new secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, is a major backer of vouchers. Thank Day 37, February 26. Donald Trump started his day with Twitter shots at the DNC, calling the upcoming election a rigged one, as well as the New York Times, that was over a TV ad to run during the Oscars, and then said, quote, Russia talk is fake news put up by the Democrats and played up by the media in order to mask the big election defeat and illegal leaks. The president did not address a Miami Herald interview in which the father of a Navy SEAL killed in Yemen, said he refused to meet with Trump, calling the mission stupid. Don't hide behind my son's death to prevent an investigation, Will Owens told the Miami Herald, the government owes my son an investigation. Several women and children were also killed in a raid that has been widely criticized and just as a defended defendant without proof by the White House. And Trump's choice to become the next Navy Secretary has pulled his name from consideration. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis announced that Philip Bilden, a private equity fund manager, withdrawn his name in a decision driven by privacy concerns and significant challenges he faced in separating himself from his business interests. And more than 100 headstones were vandalized at a Jewish cemetery in Philadelphia. This comes less than a week after similar vandalism in Missouri. Anti-Semitic hate crimes have spiked since Trump's inauguration. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was sent out to the morning shows for Trump. She returned, saying the FBI has dismissed reports of an investigation into alleged contact between Trump aides and Russian intelligence sources. This is false. In fact, there is a widening scandal over alleged contacts between aides to Trump's and Russian intelligence officials. And the scandal has shown little sign of coming under control, and Republican congressmen are calling for an independent inquiry. And the White House has, by its own admission, been working behind the scenes to try to manage the conduct of Congress and the intelligence agencies involved in the scandal. And those efforts so far seem to have backfired. Contacts between the White House Chief of Staff, Rince Priebus, and top FBI officials have come in for particular criticism as a violation of a necessary line separating the White House from justice and potential targets within the administration. Day 38, February 27th. Trump is to propose a federal budget that dramatically increases defense-related spending by nearly 10% to $54 billion, while cutting other federal agencies by the same amount. The budget proposal represents a massive increase in federal spending related to national security, while other priorities, especially foreign aid, will see significant reductions. Most other discretionary spending programs will be slashed to pay for this. Officials singled out foreign aid, one of the smallest parts of the federal budget, saying it would see large reductions in spending. Trump said his budget would put America first by focusing on defense, enforcement and veterans using money previously spent abroad. The White House did not specify how Trump's budget would address mandatory spending or taxes. The main driver of government spending are entitlement programs such as Medicare and Social Security, and Trump has promised not to touch those programs. The administration is also planning to slash taxes, which would add further to the debt. And Trump, meeting with the nation's governors, conceded that he had not been aware of the complexities of health care policymaking. Trump said, quote, I have to tell you it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. In fact, policymakers 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 did know that health care policy was incredibly complicated. Trump said the struggle to replace the Affordable Care Act was creating a legislative logjam that could delay other parts of his political agenda. Most policymakers, of course, had anticipated this as well, and governors of both parties added more confusion when they called for any replacement to the Obamacare ACA Act to cover all the people already benefiting from the landmark law. Day 39, February 28th. The typically humble Trump gave himself a grade of A for his presidency so far in an Interview Broadcast Tuesday morning. Pairing on Fox & Friends, Trump also blamed former President Obama for organizing opposition against him and called the House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi incompetent. The love is great, Donald Trump said of his supporters. I saw a poll where I was at 45 or 46 percent, but one of the things they said is that the level of enthusiasm for me is as strong as they've ever seen. And the Education Secretary Betsy DeVos is facing a fierce backlash after she called historically black colleges and universities, quote, real pioneers when it comes to school choice. In fact, historically black schools were a byproduct of Jim Crow era segregation. Blacks were not allowed to attend segregated white schools, and education pioneers did not want to give African Americans more options in higher education. Senator Claire McCaskill, a Democrat of Missouri, called the statement totally nuts. Trump signed an executive order rolling back one of former President Obama's major environmental regulations to protect American waterways. However, it will have almost no immediate legal effect. The order essentially gave EPA head Scott Pruitt to go ahead to begin the complicated process of rewriting a sweeping 2015 rule known as the Waters of the United States. Trump is also expected to sign an order instructing Pruitt to begin the process of withdrawing and revising Mr. Obama's signature 2015 climate change regulation, which aimed at curbing emissions of greenhouse gases from coal-fired power plants. And former President George W. Bush criticized President Trump on Monday, taking issue with his approach to immigration and the news media, and he suggested that any ties between the president and Russia should be investigated. I think we all need answers, Mr. Bush said on the Today Show. And Trump appeared to suggest that the wave of bomb threats against Jewish community centers could be coming from within the Jewish community itself. Pennsylvania Attorney General Josh Shapiro, who was part of a group of state attorneys general meeting with Trump, said that Trump felt some of the threats were being made from the inside as part of a potential effort to make others look bad. said, sometimes it's the reverse to make people or to make others look bad, Shapiro said. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Day 40, March 1st. Trump made his first address to a joint session of Congress. Reading from teleprompters and attempting to sound serious, he defended his tumultuous presidency and claimed he was ready to reach across party lines and put aside trivial fights to help ordinary Americans. He called on Congress to work with him on overhauling health care, changing the tax code, and rebuilding the nation's infrastructure and military. Trump's speech, however, was short on specifics and long on inaccuracies. Also, hours before his address, Trump apparently broke from his immigration stance, suggesting that legal status be granted to millions of undocumented immigrants who have not committed serious crimes, and that has sowed confusion in his cabinet. And then 24 hours later, a major news scandal hit the Trump administration. It was disclosed late on Wednesday that Attorney General Jeff Sessions spoke with the Russian ambassador last year, contradicting his testimony at his confirmation hearing. One of the meetings was a private conversation between Sessions and Russian ambassador Sergei Kishlak that took place in the senator's office at the height of what U.S. intelligence officials say was a Russian cyber campaign to upend the U.S. presidential race. Democrats immediately said he had perjured himself and must resign. Representative Nancy Pelosi said Sessions is not fit to serve as the top law enforcement officer of our country and must resign. There must be an independent bipartisan outside commission to investigate the Trump political, personal, and financial connections to the Russians. Sessions released a statement shortly before midnight that claimed he had not addressed election matters with the ambassador. And the Office of Man- and Budget has suggested deep cuts to the Environmental Protection Agency's budget that would reduce its staff by one-fifth in the first year. It would also eliminate several programs, including eliminating project grants to clean up brownfields or abandoned industrial sites, a national electronic manifest system for hazardous waste, environmental justice programs, and the Energy Star Energy Efficiency Program. Climate change initiatives and funding for Alaskan native villages are also targeted for zero funding. One person involved with the EPA said it would rip the guts out of the agency. Day 41, March 2nd, Congressional Republicans joined Democrats in demanding that Attorney General Jeff Sessions recuse himself from overseeing an investigation into context between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. House Majority Leader Representative Kevin McCarthy said that Mr. Sessions needs to clarify his testimony and that he also thought Sessions should recuse himself from any Russia-linked investigations. Mr. McCarthy said, I think the trust of the American people, you recuse yourself from these situations. Adding that for any investigation going forward, you want to make sure everybody trusts the investigation. Asked if that required Mr. Sessions to step aside, he replied, I think it'd be easier from that standpoint, yes. And Jason Schaffitz, the Utah Republican who leads the House Oversight Committee, said on Twitter, quote, AG Sessions should clarify his testimony and recuse himself. And Kellyanne Conway will not be disciplined for plugging Ivanka Trump's line of clothing in a TV show. Stefan C. who handles White House ethics issues as deputy counsel, wrote in a letter Tuesday that his office concluded Conway was speaking in a quote, light offhand. And manner when she touted the Ivanka Trump line during a February 9th appearance on Fox and Friends. Trump’s approval rating stands at 38%. These are the Trump Diaries.
4: Radio Free Bridgeport welcomed renowned writer Irvin Welsh, the author of Train Spotting, to the studio Tuesday. Welch is working in Chicago with Don Degrassi on a new opera entitled Creatives and stopped by to discuss the process, workshopping in Chicago, and how our city has changed. Radio Free airs every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. in Drive Time.
6: Uh,
7: this weekend I actually got out and I saw a really interesting what's now called pop opera uh, called Creatives up in Uptown at the Workshop Theater uh, that our guests today actually used for their, their their new show, and I just want to introduce
5: and, and welcome to the show, Don De Grazzi and Irving Welsh. For those of you who are not familiar, Irvin Welsh is the Scottish author of Train Spotting, and I'm here as the resident Scotsman of the show to translate <laughs> for
0: Mister Welsh. Good <laughs> luck with that. Good luck. Because I still can't. I've known him for 20 years. I still can't figure out what he's saying after. <laughs> This show that we're working on it is uh, it's at the uh, Chicago Workshop Theater, and the operative word there really is workshop. It's a uh, it calls itself an incubator for new works that involve music and every uh... you know we're rewriting it uh, as it goes and every show is a little bit different and a little bit better And i think the cast is getting a little bit sick of me after every show saying this was the best one yet <laughs> but it really is in this case it's true because uh... you know that the workshop uh... effect is really having a positive impact on, on the, the story and the performance and everything
6: yeah i mean it's amazing for us as writers being able to do that and um... You know, normally you can you don't, you don't just get one shot at it, really. If it's a, if it's a stage play or a screenplay, but but you know, we're both used to working with the novel as well. So you kind of, um, once you hand it in, it's done basically. But um, with the workshop format, you can kind of tinker about with it. You can sort of, you know, you can, you can introduce different ideas. You can, you know, start to throw away things that don't work. Get a lot of feedback from the actors who are, all, you know, they're all storytellers. So it does make for a much stronger, more cohesive piece, and uh, much more fun as well. Chicago obviously was a big setting in this in this play and and, and or opera. What, what do you actually what do you refer to it as? Uh,
0: the correct term is popra
6: So you
0: You yeah. <laughs> get it right. No, I learned that about two months ago. So that I'm a poprist now. So <laughs> pop opera. Oh, well, the director Tom. I mean, I make fun of it, but it all makes sense. Uh, it's not a musical in the sense that the music, it, you know, you saw the show. It's more like a, a movie soundtrack. I would say it's more akin to that. It it brings emotions out from the characters. It accentuates storyline. And there's also uh, the fictional setting as a music class where students are singing songs that they wrote within the context of the story. So technically it's not uh, a musical, it's what they, I guess they call a pop opera, which I learned in this process is also called a pop
6: Yeah, some of the, the original composition is actually the work that the, the students in the class are doing. And, and those
7: were, uh, you know, we were talking about the resident-in-chief earlier. Uh, so there, was,
6: there was some commentary there as well.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. The... <laughs> it must be unavoidable.
6: Yeah, I mean, um, it's um, it kind of is unavoidable, isn't it?
0: Yeah, the, the the current political climate is dramatized in the in that classroom. Well, no, you know, no spoilers, but uh, but yeah, that there, there's uh, the uh, it's a little bit of a microcosm for everything that that, that you guys were talking about uh, going into this show here. At, at a certain point,
6: I think it changed everything yeah. because. Um, you, you know, you always have these things going on in the background, all the cultural wars and all that. I mean, that's what America's kind of been about, really. Um, but um, prior to the, the election, it was like um, it was something that people just got by with, you know, and they kind of, you know, they cooperated. But uh, since then, everything's become very uh, polarized. It's become very, very contested. And we noticed that when we was you know developing the script with the actors and the roles, that there was just such a higher charge than there, u- there usually is so I mean it's probably it's a great place to be an artist a terrible place to be a citizen but a great place to be an artist yeah right
0: the, and it, it, earlier in the you know the process of this it's at so, certain points we were wondering if maybe we were going too far with stuff and then after the election we're like oh we, we need to go, we haven't gone far enough we have to to, to, to catch up with reality actually yeah
6: yeah, I mean, everything is so kind of hyper real now, you know, you have a kind of, um, you have something that's just beyond satire now, it's beyond kind of uh, all the the normal tools, the diagnostic tools we use to explain a kind of phenomenon like that, we use to kind of sort of ridicule it, it's gone off, it's gone off into a completely different place. And it's such a challenge for, you know, to, for, to, to try to get a hold of that sort of moving picture, you know, nobody really knows whether this is just a terrible kind of thing, mistake that's going to fizzle out, or whether this is the beginning of a new world order, a kind of new grim kind of epoch that we've moved into, um, or whether it will just kind of become a... You know, it will become weighted down with compromise and stuff like that. So you don't really know. And the situation's changing kind of... um, so you know rapidly, almost you know the, the the term you know the the opposition to it, the 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 ambition of the regime, and who's kind of involved and who's behind it, and all the kind of the infighting within it, you know behind the scenes. So, um, it's become a very it's become a very very interesting place to do a project like this. And you kind of um, one of the things that we were determined that you you have to do is. You have to acknowledge that environment, but you can't resolve it. You can't resolve all these political things, but you have to acknowledge that the actual environment that you're working in is one of political strife and chaos and, and contest.
0: And the impact that all of this you know, uh, headline stuff is having on interpersonal relations, friendships, and art, frankly, you know, and, and all of the sort of tensions that already existed within artistic environments how much more heightened they are now as a result of the current climate.
5: That was kind of what I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you've been through another era, the Thatcher era in Britain, which was also extremely difficult for artists and and people just to get on daily life. What is the duty of an artist right now in such difficult and unusual times? You already called this hyper real, but do you think artists have a special duty to speak to these times and to provide solutions and comfort? Or do they have no duty at all?
6: Um, I think, yeah, you know, it's like if you're a writer, I mean, your duty is to kind of story and character, but, you know, you try and sort of advance the story and you try and you try and make it kind of um, a character kind of consistent with that. But, you know, the characters and the stories are kind of formed by the environment as well and by the bigger kind of thematic concerns. So you have to address these. I mean, and they're best done as as an artist. They are best done. Uh, indirectly, in terms of how they affect kind of human behaviour, in terms of how they affect people's relationships with each other, in terms of how they they affect all the kind of sort of vanities and foibles that we all have. Um, and uh, but I think you know the 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 bigger if you let the bigger picture emerge from the kind of you know the, the smaller picture the interpersonal relationships, the, the, the stresses and strains that people have, I think it becomes. Um, be, I think it, I think you create a much more convincing picture because um, you shouldn't really be kind of striving for polemic in a sense because that that's you know that that's the duty of the news media and journalism and all that. The great thing about fiction is that it kind of um, it can tell these bigger emotional truths and we do that you know we do that through telling lies basically. Um, we're the kind of, um, we're the original kind of sort of fake news people in a sense because we, you know, it's like um, what you try to do is you try and you, you create these fabrications to get to a kind of deeper emotional truth which is the reverse of journalism or what, what mm. we used to understand journalism of being. Journalism is about finding these truths to tell a big lie to basically get mm-hmm. your own point across. Um, now it's about telling lies to get an even bigger lie. Um, it seems, but uh, I think that's a great thing about any kind of art. You're trying to get to a truth through not, you know, not, not necessarily looking for it. You're, kind of, you're hoping to stumble onto it through all the interactions of, of, the, of your characters and your storylines.
0: Yeah, a lot of great writers over the years have said variations on the basic, I guess, aphorism or whatever, that the journalists use the truth to tell lies, and fiction writers tell lies to, to get to the truth, and, you know, I mean, a journalist would probably take issue with that, but as fiction writers, we both kind of agree on that, that we're creating an arena uh, to, uh, to sort of hash these things out and to reflect reality, but in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. I, everyone has involved in this project has their own uh, outlook on it, and personally, I always kind of wanted to call this Paul Brunner's American Fever Dream. It's not a very good title, but for me it's a good compass for the aesthetic that we're getting at, for the reflection of what's going on now that is actually uh, dramatized on the stage there. And there's some very Chicago-specific stuff in the script that, that we're going to keep no matter where it goes because, you know, it is, a, it's, it is in part a Chicago story, and it's very interesting, this format. It's, it's kind of strange because I think the term papra, even though I'm new to that term, Implies something very fun and uplifting, and there are. There you said
6: are, the word "pop" more uh, than anybody else I, in the world. I'm going <laughs> to. I can't get enough of it I, because you know,
0: as a poprist, I feel that the, the term "pop" is very important for the uh, for the vernacular. But uh, uh, there is there there's fun stuff in the play and uplifting stuff, but it's also at times dark, ugly. It, it, it's meant to be. Uh, kind of an abstract reflection of, of, of the reality that we're living in. That's why I kind of like the term fever dream a bit, just from my own personal outlook. And it's just such, to me, that's the most interesting thing, is to kind of sit there almost in this dream uh, and experience it night after night. Changes a little bit, sort of a recurring dream, because we keep seeing it through this workshop process.
5: I wanted to ask you guys, it's something we've been discussing in the show the last couple of months, but it seems like Chicago's having a moment in popular culture, both good and bad. kind of wanted to get your take on that.
0: Well, uh, I think you know one of the things that certainly is soaring uh, above everything else right now, I think, is, is Chance's ascension and the way that he has been handling uh, his success and just kind of setting a model for almost the whole popular music world and the way he's handling it. Uh, you know, the, the imp- we, we have in, in Second City and Io the, the Harvard and Yale uh, of the world, in uh, improv and sketch uh, comedy. And, uh, and, uh, and so on. I think it's, I think Chicago really is uh, just continually over the years emerging as, uh, as a cultural and artistic hub of the world. You know, uh, Chicago's changing a lot too. Or it's, like like you were talking about earlier, it's it's changed a lot from the '70s and '80s and '90s and so on. And it's a little bit more. Uh, it's a little less Chicago uh, compared to what what I was used to when I was a little kid. Uh, and uh, I don't love everything about that, uh, but some good has come of it too.
6: Uh, but, even uh, since yeah, I've yeah. kind of been here, I think it's definitely kind of kept the swagger you know, the kind of blue-collar spagger, but it has kind of refined it a bit as well now. Um, So it is an interesting place. It has got much more metropolitan, but not too much, not kind of um, offensively so.
4: Nancy Clem spoke this week with Christina Golden, a member of the Medic and Healing Council of Sacred Stones camp from the Standing Rock North Dakota pipeline protests. Golden lived and worked there for the past eight months as an EMT and herbalist, and they discuss the status of the camp and explore concepts of trauma and self care within political actions and movements. Spontaneous Vegetation airs first Wednesdays at noon.
8: Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Spontaneous Vegetation. I'm your host, Nancy Clem. In this month's show, I'll be speaking with Christina Golden a member of the Medic and Healing Council of the Sacred Stones Camp at Standing Rock, North Dakota, where she has lived and worked over the past eight months as an EMT and a herbalist. Can you tell us more about what the camp looks like and feels like today? Um, Well,
9: we are talking at a significant moment because the camp is seems pretty likely that it's soon to be no more. Last week, um, for people who don't know much about the layout of the place geographically, there's actually a couple different sites where the camp has been. Um, It started at Sacred Stone, um, getting close to a year ago now. And as people came in, it started to outgrow that site. So it moved... um, the camp moved to a different location, about a 20 minute walk from Sacred Stone. Um, and that spot became known as the Big Camp or Ocheti Shakoan, or later got renamed to Ocheti Oyate. Um, and Ocheti Camp got raided last week um, and completely evicted. So no one is there anymore. Um, and a lot of folks moved back to the Sacred Stone Camp. Um, And now the Sacred Stone Camp is in the process of being evicted. They've set up roadblocks and for the last few days had been letting people come and go, but not letting anyone go in with supplies. And now I just got word that they're not letting anybody go in at all anymore. They're only letting people leave. So everything is changing rapidly. um, And folks are fighting The eviction of sacred stone pretty hard on legal grounds, and I don't know all of what's going on with that, but right now the word that I've gotten is that everyone is leaving and being ushered out.
8: What I'd really like to do is kind of delve into um, being a healer in a situation that you've been in for a long time. So, um, And I'm also interested in encampments in general, and um, how they form and how they sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, since since these, this camp is a really kind of long-term, um, long-term intense situation, I'm really, I, I think just being within the camp, even if there's a lot of grounding and connectivity and um, understanding that's coming up, in the camp, there's a lot of trauma and, um, whether you're involved in actions or, or you're, um, just witness to them. And that's why I want to hear a little bit more about your take and what you've seen and what your beliefs are around those short and long-term effects of trauma on humans.
9: Yeah. There's a lot of trauma. Um, and it comes from a lot of places and, It gets um, intensified, I think, when you have a lot of people living in close quarters for four or five, six months plus at a time in essentially like in crisis mode much of that time. Mm -hmm. There have been periods of time at camp that are pretty calm and people are just doing life in an encampment, but there have been a lot of moments when the energy spikes constantly over and over and over. And there've been moments when um, for days and weeks at a time, people thought a raid was imminent actions were happening all the time. And just to have so many people all at once experiencing that like sympathetic nervous system activation over and over and over again is really significant. Mm. And so that's like kind of the, baseline state of things and then you layer on top of that all the other things that are traumatic to different people and obviously everyone experiences things differently Um, but we have police brutality at actions um, seeing a lot of injuries, seeing friends and family and loved ones hurt and at risk um, and at the other end of Um, possibly lethal weaponry like those things are traumatic and then you have people all these people from all over the place from all kinds of different experiences in life coming to camp and bringing all their stuff from the rest of their life experience so you have the trauma of people's stories coming into it, people bringing all of their stories and all of the other things they've experienced in the world um, people who've experienced a lot of oppression, people who've experienced a lot of neglect and abuse in different ways, like all the things that happen in society have happened at this camp, and they're all intensified here because mm-hmm. it's a high intensity situation.
8: Mm-hmm.
9: and we're we're dealing with burnout. We're dealing with people who have all sorts of health issues because they're unable to stay well very easily. And it's just like everything compounded on everything else.
8: Well, how do you practice self care at camp? You personally, and then um, others that seem to be able to kind of deal with the uh, this high intensity situation. How do you kind of step out of it, or how do you regulate, or get to a, uh, a you know yeah. a, a point of rest and rejuvenation? Yeah.
9: What, what do you mean, a point of rest? Is that a thing? Do you, how,
8: do you <laughs> you know, how do you practice self-care? I'm just trying to maybe describe <laughs> yeah. situ- situations that would, um, or certain feelings you're trying to bring about with your self-care. I just, I'm hoping you're practicing self-care, Christy. <laughs> yeah,
9: it's hard. It is really hard because um, at so many moments, things have felt so urgent Um, that it feels really impossible to take a break um, or to stop working when you know that there's like lots and lots of people waiting for you and wanting and needing care. Uh, So I have to say self-care has been one of the biggest challenges. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's one of the things we have to take like a pretty hard look at when we everyone who's been at camp when we start to think about lessons learned because there's working really hard and then there's working really hard to the point that you can't actually do effective work anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think to me, like, there's a lot of different stages of burnout, but it's actually really dangerous when we're so burned out and so fatigued that we can't get along anymore that we can't provide good care that our communication breaks down and all these things. And I'm not just speaking about um, I'm not speaking about any one thing in camp or otherwise, but just in movements and in the struggle and the way that the world feels really urgent. And there's so many things that feel like they're exploding and going wrong all the time. It's like how, could we possibly stop working? Um, especially for people who hold a lot of compassion and who feel things really intensely, it's like, how could we possibly stop working? And it's really hard to internalize those lessons of like, it's not stopping working. It's like when you care for yourself and like c- convince your community members to care for themselves and do like community care, it's not stopping working, it's building a model of collective care so that we make sure that nobody's falling through the cracks and nobody's getting to the point of burnout where they just don't want to be a part of a movement at all anymore. Um, and it's actually a way of building resiliency Beautiful. so that we can bounce back. And so that some people can step back a little bit when they need a rest and other people will step up and we're communicating well enough that all those things can happen. And I think like, yeah, I've seen a lot of burnout at Standing Rock. I've seen a lot of burnout in other movements that I've been a part of, too. Yeah. And it's a chronic problem. Like, people who care a lot want to work all the time. Right. Um And so I, I do think that's part of, like, creating this alternative model that we want to see happen. It's like we have to, we have to learn how to hold ourselves in a yeah. good way so we can keep going more effectively.
8: It's yeah. a problem I know as well. <laughs> that's why I ask. Yeah. Yeah. It's always the piece that, that that's the question, how to, how to reboot, how to restore. Melanie Adcock spoke
4: with Brian Kroll of Lucy's Parsons Lab and Tech Solidarity about Chicago police, surveillance, and how freedom of information requests can do real good. Texting Chicago was recently nominated for a 2017 National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine Communication Award. TechScene airs every Friday at 1 p.m.
10: Brian, welcome to Tech Scene Chicago.
7: Thanks for having me, Melody.
10: Yeah, th- thank you. We're glad you're able to join us today. Uh, there's uh, so much for us to talk about, and, and, and Lucy Parsons' lab and all the people involved are people who do a lot of things. I, I love that, and we're going to talk about all the cool stuff you're up to. Uh, tell us about who Lucy Parsons was and why you named your, your lab after her.
7: Uh, so we take a lot of inspiration from Lucy Parsons. Um, we are, uh, so Lucy Parsons was actually uh, born a slave in the uh, mid-1800s. Um, she was actually married to one of the Haymark and Martyrs in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she really spent the majority of her life speaking out and uh, unionizing people and making sure that people had fair labor practices, they were being paid, they weren't being abused. And we really felt that her words, uh, you know, really struck home and she was, uh, you know, the right person to lead a lot of those charges. Um, in the 1920s, the Chicago Police Department actually said, and uh, this isn't verbatim, but they said that she was more powerful than a thousand rioters. Mm-hmm. And so that is really a big inspiration for us.
10: Yeah. And what, so what, what does your lab do and, and what projects are you working on now?
7: Uh, So we've worked on a couple different projects. Um, First off, uh, we kind of work between the -the on-the-street issues and technology, and um, we're a collaboration of data scientists and technologists and activists. And what we focused on, um, for example, one of our projects was uh, trying to expose 1505 funding, which is a civil asset forfeiture. Mm. Uh, We recently had an article published uh, about the use of civil asset forfeiture funds And for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, uh, basically this is a program where the police can seize your property, including cash, house, car, um, other personal possessions. And basically sell it and make money off of it in order to prosecute you Mm -hmm. and also to fund things like surveillance technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, Also to basically, uh, as we found out, Chicago can use it to buy anything they want and it's essentially an unchecked fund so it's a slush fund
10: Mm -hmm. Um, now Lucy Parsons Labs and and your activism has led to the release of records detailing some pretty scary things that the Chicago Police Department like the fact that they use a combination of drug money civil forfeiture and money laundering funds to buy surveillance equipment called stingrays and as well as some other devices that they tried to keep hush hush from the public now what what is your dream outcome from all of these efforts from the Lucy Parsons lab? And, and what would you most like to see the police change?
7: Um, so, you know, the 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 MC catchers or the stingrays that you're talking about, these are fake cell phone towers. And um, as we've seen uh, with records from Chicago, and we've also seen this from other cities, they basically are used unchecked. And what that means is is that anybody can take them out of inventory, use them at any point, And the full capabilities of these devices are still not 100% known. But we do know that they can take down what's called metadata. Mm -hmm. So uh, they know who you're talking to. They know um, all the details of that. They may not know the contents because you're using encryption, hopefully. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But uh, they're essentially uh, passive uh, spying devices. And without a warrant or proper legal oversight, pretty much anything can happen with those Mm -hmm. And um, I know in the Illinois state um, government right now, there's actually bills. And actually, as of January 1, there's a bill that any law enforcement agency has to get a warrant to use a stingray. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that's being followed and who's doing the oversight, that's to be questioned. But Mm -hmm. this is a huge step. Illinois, as far as I'm aware, of, is one of the first states, um, as far as I'm aware of any state, to actually implement something like this. So mm-hmm. that's a very important key legislation. Mm-hmm. Um, so protecting that legislation is, uh, you know, very important.
10: Yeah. Well, and, it, and that's well, that's that's great, and this is this is so um, interesting because uh, a lot of times, if if someone's involved in technology, they're trying to build a company, and you guys are trying to do some do some very important civic reform. Um, Definitely. Now, now, can you tell us a little bit about how the legal process works that that led to the release of this information? That's pretty interesting, too. Uh,
7: So one thing we do a lot of is we put out FOIA requests or Freedom of Information Act requests, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, in itself is a good idea. It has a lot of problems. So essentially, let's say I want to find out what, you know, the police department is doing and we want to find out what they're doing with Stingrays. We actually have to put a request in with the Chicago Police Department and they can choose to either reject it or um, or, or refurbish whatever the documents are. And it's very difficult because they don't actually follow, um, like, recommended guidelines. They'll deny stuff for the smallest little, like, issue because there's a lot of exemptions in there. So you can't FOIA for personal information, Mm -hmm. obviously. But anything that's in the public service realm, right, that they're doing in terms of buying equipment or, you know, using public funds for should be completely foia for. Mm -hmm. (laughs) However, that's not always true. We get a lot of denials. Uh, We have to constantly request updates on stuff. Sometimes they take uh, months (laughs) to respond to us, even though the state statute is they have to respond within five days. Mm -hmm. And then after that five days, they have to respond within another five days and they have to keep the communication open. But we find that to be lacking. Um, We also find that uh, the documents they give us, either uh, they just, you know, refuse to give all the documents or they just cherry pick and pick up what uh, documents they, they think is uh, what we want to see. And then they give us stuff. So we have to go and put more requests in and do more mm-hmm. digging. And Avorte, it's a very, it's a time consuming process. It's, it's very frustrating. And, you know, that type of information should be open. Mm-hmm. And we feel that, you know, it's just a bad process and it's not a good process. It needs to definitely be reformed.
10: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, and so that it takes a long time to get this information. So, a lot of what you're doing is advocating and submitting these requests, which, which um, led, as I mentioned earlier, to the release of these records. Yeah. Um, uh, fascinating. And, you know, on a local level, we're seeing police buying stingrays and covert monitoring equipment. What about the federal government? Is the federal government also doing this? And what are the implications of that?
7: Uh, so to kind of go back, just a, just a touch with the surveillance equipment is a lot of the equipment that they're getting, um, these technologies are coming from private companies. Okay. Uh, they're getting funds from like the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, they are getting help from departments like the Federal Bureau of In- Investigation. Uh, they're getting training. And there's a lot of stuff that's happening where um, you know we don't know about. And so if we do a FOIA request, right? they'll only give us documents that show that they may had training for something or they bought a certain piece of equipment. But they won't actually tell us how they're using it because those are investigative techniques. Those are mm-hmm. under exemption. And what happens is, is that now you've got a department who has a device that can spy on people. They don't have a warrant. And you don't know how they're using it. So they're completely mm-hmm. outside the law. Mm-hmm. And so what's happening is is that you're seeing this at the federal level. The um, federal level is protecting local local. Is being solicited by private entities, and those private entities are making money off of poor citizens, off of the public, and unfortunately, that's that's pretty wrong.
8: Mm-hmm.
10: Yeah, uh, I I think a lot of people would um, possibly um, agree with with all of everything that you just said, um, and it, and and so that's it, it. It the work you're doing has a much broader implication than just the local of Chicago.
7: Yeah, it's any community. And unfortunately, you know, the the trends that we're seeing is that it's going after poor communities, especially black and brown, and it's unfairly targeted. Mm-hmm. And especially when it comes to civil asset forfeiture, you're talking about a lot of the um, uh, hot zones, if you want to call them, right? Uh, it's always to the south and west sides. It's always mm-hmm. the, the poor communities. It's always the black and brown communities. And unfortunately, Um, You know, you don't see this on the north side as much. You don't see this in other more affluent areas. You don't see this in the suburbs as much. So it's Mm -hmm. unfairly targeted. Like what you hear? Full
4: episodes, archives, and more are available at Mixcloud.com forward slash Lumpin Radio. The Lumpin Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.